Broadcasting live from Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Women's Telehealth, whose mission is to bring scarce, high-risk maternal fetal medicine services to patients and referring obstetricians in their own community, urban or rural. Visit womenstelehealth.com for more information. Now, here are your hosts, Tanya Mack and C.W. Hall. What is up, Tanya Mack? Well, I have been on the road and traveling since I last saw you, but I'm happy to be back, and thanks for filling in for me while I was gone. I was pleased to do it. It was great having Dr. Sufi and Dr. Rao in the studio sharing some great information about pregnancy during the summertime. You know, over the past couple of years, I've been doing the Top Docs radio show. I've had some opportunities to talk about telemedicine, meeting some companies from the space that are providing telemedicine solutions. And one of the things that came up is that it's sometimes the technology can outpace. Yeah, I think we're going to be talking today about how policies and laws kind of are shaping telemedicine as we go. About a week ago, I was at one of the national meetings in Phoenix, um, the Service Provider Showcase. Um, Women's Telehealth presented two posters there, but the hot topic was definitely um, telemedicine law may be hindering even um, how we're able to deliver the care these days. So let me tell you a little bit about that. Certainly affordable quality telemedicine is on everybody's mind these days. It's on the news. We see it on TV commercials. It's kind of a tool that's being used more and more frequently to provide access when and where needed, and it decreased costs. One a- analyst recently predicted that by 2020, the telemedicine market would be worth $36 billion, certainly a huge upside. And even though we have technology improvements um, that have enabled a new generation of telemedicine services, the policymakers seem to have been a little bit slower in adopting telemedicine. And the healthcare service industry is pretty much slow adopters anyway. So today we've brought in the experts. We're thrilled to have Bill Bowling and Mason Reed of Atlanta, Georgia, here to discuss these telehealth law and policy questions and answers with us. Welcome, both guys. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, let Thank me you CW. Yeah, let me tell you here. a little bit about each one of them. So Bill Bowling um, has a healthcare boutique firm based in Atlanta, Georgia, but covers certainly the nation in terms of healthcare policy. He's been in practice more than 30 years. His practice has taken him from Rome, Georgia, to small town Mississippi, kind of all over and back again. He's a telehealth expert because years ago, actually, and I'll let you fill in the gaps, Bill, um, he played an integral part in the relaunch of Reach Health, which is based here in Alpharetta, Georgia, one of the early telemedicine stroke companies. And he's also been general counsel at the Medical College of Georgia. So welcome today, Bill. Thank you, Tanya. Good to be here. And we also have his associate, Mason Reed, joining us today. He joined the firm in August of 2014. He came out of the University of Georgia School of Law. Local boy, we always like that, Mason, so <laughs> welcome for that. He closely tracks the legal, regulatory, and business developments in healthcare with a special focus on rural healthcare and telemedicine. So welcome, Mason. Thank you. So we're going to jump right into it. It's a hot topic, telemedicine and healthcare law in general. But before we start, why don't you tell us a little bit about the firm and a little bit more about how you guys got specialized in telemedicine. Thank you, Tanya. Um, I um, <clears throat> I had my first experience in 2003 in, in Augusta at the Medical College of Georgia, our department neurosciences was one of our one of the top four departments in the country and dr david hess came into my office one day and said bill i think i'd like to put a camera and we had 16 
community hospitals uh, uh, in North, in uh, East Central Georgia. I'd like to put a, uh, a TV camera in there, and then when stroke victims come in, I'd like to consult with emergency room doctors to make sure they get clot-busting drugs. What do you think about that? Mm-hmm. I think I said, well, I think uh, I'm going to close my office now. Sounded pretend, scary. Yeah, I pretend you didn't Sounds say scary. that. But, uh, but uh, he explained to me, showed me the data about how infrequently uh, uh, lives that could be uh, saved or uh, made well again if the uh, if only the clot busting drugs could be delivered within the golden hour then uh and and it just made so much sense so we pretty much uh, from about 2003 forward pioneered it david went on to write the uh, seminal article in lancet uh, demonstrating the efficacy of telestroke and um then when the company was formed and it spun out of the, the Medical College of Georgia and became an independent freestanding company, uh, I went on to continue to represent it um, out um, uh, outside of that. And um, now, uh, many years later, there are a number of other companies doing it. And, yeah. of course, telemedicine has expanded well beyond uh, telestroke. So it still remains probably the top most <clears throat> use of telemedicine in terms of specialty. My, my sense a, a lot mm-hmm. of hospitals. My sense of it, that's right. I think uh, you, there's an awful lot of use of tele of tele medicine technologies in the behavioral health area. And interestingly, telestroke is sort of, I I call it like an elephant gun. It is one single bullet solving a tremendously large problem. And things like behavioral health or chronic disease management, it's using telemedicine almost like a fishing net to capture and support lots and lots and lots of micro encounters and micromanagement type of uh, needs. Mm -hmm. So telemedicine really is such a broad array of technologies. Uh, yeah. Brings so, me know. to my next question. Mason, let's punt it to you. I know that in the industry, people kind of get confused right at the very beginning definition of telemedicine versus telehealth. Some people use them interchangeably. The industry itself defines them a little different. So why don't you clarify that for us? Well, I don't I don't think anybody should um, lose sleep over the distinction. Uh, we, we basically use them interchangeably. Um, the American Telemedicine Association now uses them interchangeably and if it's good enough for them it's uh, good enough for us uh I, I do think that there have been over the last decade or so some distinctions involving well is this the uh is this healthcare by technology in any form or is it a traditional visit traditional consult that we're talking about these days i, I think we might as well break down any kind of artificial you know distinction there and i, I think they're 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 basically interchangeable. Mm-hmm. That's good to hear. People can be safe either yeah, way. I hear, I hear it at, at um, just about every conference still. And, yeah. uh, I know from my perspective, we hear sometimes telemedicine is more focused on the segment of telehealth that actually provides clinical practice. And telehealth is much broader, mm-hmm. which could be school-based systems or mm-hmm. long-distance learning mm-hmm. or um, whatever. Mm-hmm. We once had a Russian contingent come here that we were training, and they said, oh, I use telemedicine, I use telemedicine. How do you do it? Well, mm-hmm. I only use it to train doctors. Certainly a use for it, mm-hmm. but they never even put the patient in the equation. So, point. yeah, so you never know. I, w- I would just add to that, Tanya. I think it's, I think Mason's exactly right. But I do think that traditionally people have used telehealth as sort of the bigger tent, uh, meaning right. everything. Okay. And, and, and also sometimes people use it kind of to say, you know, like wellness, the health, the focus on the health, you might use this to monitor someone or to have a social worker just checking in with a Medicare patient that might be more telehealth, but having a, you know, a a a a neurologist online and a stroke victim, that's more telemedicine, Mm -hmm. more, more focused. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good. We're using just both terms at this point in Mm -hmm. time, for sure. Let's kind of start from the patient's perspective. Bill, why don't you tell us, I know state by state, 
is a huge thing mm. in telemedicine right now. Mm. We're going to talk about mm. that for the next several minutes mm. in terms of regulation and law. Um, but just in general, let's start with the whole issue of informed consent. I know mm. right now a lot of companies get a separate informed consent just for mm-hmm. telehealth. Mm-hmm. Um, and in general, I know the industry would like to be pointing towards it's just a consent and telemedicine's another tool, but we aren't quite there yet. So that's true. I think anyone that is beginning, if you're if you're if if you're looking at it through the patient's lenses, take a quick step back. What what the law wants to do is to to protect the safety of patients, right? And so um, consent there there's generally a general consent to do what you're going to do, which a healthcare provider gets, and then there's informed consent. And informed consent is a much m- more technical uh, term of art. It means that the patient has to know what an alternate uh, what the alternatives to this course of treatment would be in order for their, if they decide to go forward with a telemedicine consult or whatever the therapy or, or diagnostics are, what, what an alternative to that might be. And healthcare is regulated largely at the state level because of the federal uh, payment system, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, VA, and other forms of federal payments for healthcare. There's a there's an overlay of a lot of uh, specific to Medicare, specific to Medicaid type rules and regulations. But generally speaking, the ability of a practitioner to engage in telemedicine and what would be required in terms of licensing, in terms of Every aspect of that encounter is set by the uh, each state to state, and it varies. In Georgia, it's, it's the composite board or the so-called state board of medical examiners that uh, has a regulatory body, and it sets what the rules are. Uh, and they, they, like all law, they evolve over time. So generally speaking, uh, whatever you would be required to do in a face-to-face encounter in terms of a, a general consent or a, an informed consent, you would need that. Plus, uh, I would advise that you also make sure that the patient has acknowledged that they could have a face-to-face encounter if they preferred, but that these are the advantages of a telemedicine encounter and that they consent to doing it via telemedicine. Mm -hmm. That's like a third level of consent, Mm -hmm. Uh, an acknowledgement by the patient that this is is, uh, one of several ways they might receive a consult, but this is the way that they're opting to go. So I know in a lot of cases, if the patient's based in a hospital or doctor's office or somewhere where there was a referral link and relationships, that's pretty easy to do because they're filling out paperwork anyway. Mm -hmm. A little more controversial, and I'd love to hear your take on this, is the increasing direct consumer demand for telemedicine. Mm -hmm. So like in Texas, the teledoc where you're just at Mm -hmm. your home or Mm -hmm. the United Healthcare Mm -hmm. commercial where somebody's dancing and falls and just gets on their laptop. What what is your take on that? Well, uh, and informed consent. Right. I'm I'm a lawyer, right? So I've got to tell you on the one hand and then on the other hand. So uh, so there are two ways of looking at this. Um, Medicine uh, until the 19th, uh, the end of the 19th century, uh, coming into the 20th, 20th century was largely driven by snake oil and cracker quackery mm-hmm. you know uh at the time that uh the 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 lawyers were writing the uh, the uh, constitution uh, uh many physicians were still applying leeches and 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 bleeding patients so there's a there's a long 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 lasting and 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 good reasons to be very concerned that pe- consumers are not taken advantage of by people that don't have proper credentials and mm-hmm. are not really able to d- provide the services they claim to provide. So that's the one hand. And so on the one hand, I'm I'm in favor of having a regulatory body that that screens and has a process for 
patients to get access to a physician. It's not if I want to uh, buy something off Amazon off my mobile phone. Uh, you know, the most I'm risking is the cost of a pair of Nike tennis shoes. Uh, on the other hand, if I'm going to be ta- pursuing a, a, a regimen or my 14-year-old child is going to be pursuing some medical regimen based off what they just got off their cell phone, uh, off their iPhone, then that really concerns me that, that we monitor and have, make sure that those who are providing the care have gone through what we would consider a reasonable uh, standard of care and, and a practice. On the other hand, if we make the if we don't if we don't allow the technology to service, and if we're overly restricted, uh, then we're provide we're we're not providing as much care as carefully, and we're denying a level of access of care that we need to receive. So getting that just right is 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 a bit tricky. But I think everybody that I see is really working hard to try to get that just right. I'm be very Mason's of the generation where he grew up with with all the with, technology. Yeah, so He's I'd totally be, comfortable with get, doing everything. So be, what do you think, Mason? Uh, well, I think it, it is probably difficult for um, for those companies to um, to craft in a consent letter for each and every state because it is a matter of state law, right. generally, and so that is a challenge for them, I'm sure. Um, I've not another you know interesting, very plausible, maybe inevitable reality is that they, these consent forms will be very detailed, maybe even like an iTunes user agreement eventually. And in, in a tele, in a medicine world where everything's just a click and it's supposed to happen instantaneously. Mm-hmm. We do if, that when we buy a plane ticket. Right, right, right. So too. if yeah. people are uh, giving their consent in, in that kind of fashion to um, what might be deemed a contract of adhesion, something that's just exhaustive and uh, that nobody could reasonably be expected to read it all. We've not seen that litigated yet where uh, it it may have been, but I've not seen it uh, where a patient has said, well, I did give my consent to this form of, you know, telehealth, but I didn't really know what I was signing. It was in an app. It was just, uh, they, they said, check yes or no. And, and you know, it, it, it's not the same as in a traditional hospital setting of obtaining consent. Mm-hmm. So um, that, that will be um, interesting to see. And I'm sure it's really, really on the minds of anybody offering direct-to-consumer Yeah, I think healthcare. it is. I think, Bill, you brought up a great point, too, about quality assurance with mm-hmm. the direct-to-consumer telehealth encounters. Mm-hmm. I know maybe last month or a couple of weeks ago, the Wall Street Journal ran a piece about quality assurance with dermatology, Mm. where they actually um, posed as patients and had encounters and found out that I think only 30% of the doctors were licensed in the state they Mm. were supposed to be. And Mm. there was a whole lot of problems there Mm. with the direct-to-consumer. So Mm. I think all of us service providers have uh, got our dander up about, you know, we really need to take a good look at quality assurance, even if we have direct doctor-to-patient referrals, but especially if it's direct-to-consumer. I'll tell you, uh, scary, but this is not to be, I I really want to encourage people to use uh, telemedicine because it's such a, and people will, inevitably, but but I had a a physician call me and he was going under, he was about to go under some very serious scrutiny by a regulatory body, and he was describing what he was doing, and and um, he was using uh, his patients didn't know that some of the encounters he was having they were having were with medical students uh, who were not who were offshore students who were not they weren't licensed mm-hmm. they were they were smart you know <laughs> right. and they were good but they were unlicensed mm-hmm. and uh, when you're encountering someone on you if you don't have a face even if you have a face right. if you don't if they're not associated with a hospital or associated if they're if they're unlicensed or you the consumer's not able to the consumer's dependent on the state right. to assure that that right. person it's a has, great point yeah, especially in imaging world 
yeah. where they're interpreting images and who knows where yeah. those providers yeah. sit. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's move on to some actual telemedicine encounters. I know another hot topic in the law has to do with the provider to patient telemedicine visits. And some states now have a requirement that the, the patient first has to be seen by mm-hmm. the provider, mm-hmm. and then following that, they can be monitored or mm-hmm. have their treatment plan changed mm-hmm. after the initial encounter. Can you guys speak to that a little bit? I'll, I'll defer to Mason. He's okay. all over that issue. All right. Yeah, well, it's really all, it's a, uh, that's a hot one. <laughs> yeah, it really is. A hot, it's, it's evolving all the time and in a really good way for the most part. Um, just seems about once or twice a month, uh, a new, uh, another state will relax their mm-hmm. uh, laws around physician-patient encounter requirements, uh, and that's been... Uh, really great. Uh, um, Arkansas was one of the latest dominoes to fall, and um, Texas, as, as you mm-hmm. uh, alluded to earlier, is one of the last holdouts where really a face-to-face is required in almost every scenario before telemedicine can be provided, and that's been litigated, and, and we can go into that now or, or later. But um, yeah, I think I think for the most part, most states uh, at this point do allow uh, as long as the technology is sufficient to, you know, sort of measure up to an in-person encounter, um, they do allow uh, a, an encounter without a previous face-to-face. Georgia is is one of those. The, the default rule is is you have to have a face-to-face encounter. But if your technology is equal or superior to an in-person encounter, um, then that's fine. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think that's again, a very new area, probably makes some people uncomfortable. But I do think that um, many medical boards and many state legislatures are wanting to encourage telemedicine. And uh, the goal of these laws is to allow for it, not to really inhibit it. So um, we're seeing a lot of good developments there. Right. What about, you mentioned a lot about Georgia's um, provider-patient relationship, but what about their reimbursement requirements? I know, again, state to state, Mm -hmm. um, for telemedicine encounters, it's evolutionary and changing pretty rapidly. Well, that's a great uh, point. The uh, that you'll have to be doubly following not just whatever the law is, whatever the uh, medical board has said, but also what are the conditions of the payment payers, for yeah. each individual payer. And so the requirements for uh, what is telemedicine? Is it a two-way audio visual? Is it they, they, they each payer has a different definition um, typically. Uh, sometimes they try to make it easy on you by tracking whatever the state's law is, but uh, you've got different, uh, is store and forward acceptable? That varies. Uh, you've got all these conditions of payment that are distinct from the law itself. And so any provider needs to be aware of both those things. Right. So you need to check the law and you need to check, check the reimbursement. Kind of, yep, yeah, yep. Check the reimbursement yep. uh, policies in that state. So let's talk about one big, uh, another hot topic, parity law. So I know in uh, telemedicine that has to do with making sure that uh, you're paid the same in some states, you're paid the same if you meet the requirements as if you did an in-person visit. But can you kind of expound on that a little bit, either one of you? Yeah, I'll um, I'll I'll take a crack at this. Mason can <clears throat> fill in. But um, the states have uh, traditionally uh, regulated uh, large insurance companies and payers on a state-to-state level as well. And so uh, here again, with parity laws, you have to look at each state. And, and again, they are evolving as the technology is evolving, as more people are demanding it, as it makes more sense from a policy standpoint. 
typically uh, states are doing what Georgia did very early in the game. We were one of the first states to have a parity law. I think there are 20, over 20, 20, what is it, Mason, 28 states now. Uh, Arizona's the la- latest to recently approve a parity law. And what it says essentially is that, what is that, Tanya? It says that if you would pay X for a, a rehab uh, follow-up for uh, post, uh, you know, uh, total knee joint, uh, if you if that payment is X, if they came to the office and you can do the same eval uh, via telemedicine, then you got to pay X for it. You cannot discriminate against a telemedicine encounter uh, because it's not an in-person encounter, and that's the parity that they're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's very broad. There nothing is as long as you can have a a, a, a an acceptable level of um, uh, medical diagnostic or. Uh, follow-up visit uh, via telemedicine, you're entitled to be paid for it. And if they, and if you get, and we hear it all the time from clients, well, we're not getting paid for it, or we get pushback. Well, you shouldn't get pushback. <laughs> They've got to pay it. If they don't, it's a failure to pay a, a timely claim, and they're, they will be subject to penalties. So, yeah. Can yeah. you guys talk about how that ties to uh, professional liability insurance? So, for example, if I'm the provider and I recommend that clot buster, mm-hmm. but I'm at a distance, um, mm-hmm. Is that part of how playing into it? I mean, it's mm-hmm. the same advice that I could mm-hmm. be mm-hmm. sued for or whatever, mm-hmm. whether mm-hmm. I'm in person giving the mm-hmm. advice or whether I give that mm-hmm. over a telemedicine counter. Man, that is a fascinating question. And I, I started my career as a, as, a, as, a, as a medical negligence defense attorney mm-hmm. defending doctors and nurses and hospitals. And so I, 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 uh, and I ran the risk management at the medical college. So I'm always thinking about that, that side mm-hmm. of care delivery. And it is, uh, it's like a 3D chess model because at one level, let's take a community hospital emergency room. If you've got a community hospital emergency room now in many states, maybe arguably Georgia, and you have an, a very qualified emergency doctor who does not feel qualified to make a, a neurological assessment, well, is this a brain bleed and therefore I must not give a clot buster or is this a brain or do we have a clot here that I need to that I need to dissolve? If he can't make that call or she can't make that call, someone might argue that in 2016, all of the surrounding hospitals have and are effectively using telemedicine, and it would be a deviation from the standard of care not to have a telemedicine mm-hmm. consult. Do you see where I'm going mm-hmm. with that? Mm-hmm. So at some point, the level of care technology, as it moves forward, it begins to be not only is it not risky to do it, you're actually, it's risky to not do, do it, it yeah. because it has become de facto the standard of care. So there are many, many issues around it's it. Possible. Fortunately, yeah. I would say for practitioners thinking of getting into telemedicine right now, it's a very soft market, meaning a good market for providers wanting to acquire some extra insurance or a, an overlay to their existing coverage to specifically provide for telemedicine. We have some companies we work with and they're really excellent. That may not always be the case. But for right now, there's been a dearth of litigation. I think Mason's maybe found what one case or yeah. involving specifically. Well, you you know, it's a telemedicine case, and therefore it was this, uh, beneath the standard of care to treat me via telemedicine. So you, a, I think it's because it's still a growing thing. I think as we have more telemedicine mm-hmm. encounters, you'll see it's just inevitable. Mm-hmm. You'll you'll see more litigation. But there's not a lot of litigation out there, and therefore. It's still a pretty affordable kind of insurance to get. Mm-hmm. I don't I, know if that answered your question. I think part of, part of the issue that we have here that we're talking about is because 
Uh, it's relatively new that we're seeing, and these laws are changing so fast, state mm-hmm. to state. Mm-hmm. We really, you know, you brought up the point, Mason, that there really hasn't been litigation f- for or against it. There aren't many cases to mm-hmm. test it yet. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we're kind of all learning, mm-hmm. you know, together. Mm-hmm. Bill, you brought up standards of care, and that's another topic I wanted to get to today. And that has to do with, again, quality of care. Not every visit mm-hmm. is appropriate for telemedicine. Mm-hmm. So, Following standards, are there standards of care by special? I know it's by specialty and primary care and that kind of thing, but mm-hmm. I know the whole issue of, uh, you mentioned earlier in the broadcast, having to provide the same care as if you were in person or the same mm-hmm. standards as if mm-hmm. you were in person is mm-hmm. really critical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, Mason, do you want to take that or you want me to riff on it for a minute and you jump in? Or? Well, I, I mean, I, I think you could speak to it better than I could having having practiced, you know, uh, med mal defense for, and I've, I've not done that. Uh, but I do, you know, know that standard of care is a sort of a fluid concept. Um, you know, it, it does depend on the type of care being delivered. And so anybody who's leaning on one standard of care thinking, well, maybe, you know, as, as Bill mentioned, as telemedicine becomes the norm, there will be new standards Mm -hmm. that uh, are applied to telemed, you know, telecare. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I I think that. Yeah, I think right now, I think I think right now where we are is um, because the regular because the regulators are saying, well, you can do it without a pre-visit as long as it's at or at the same level. That means that if you're looking at a dermatological image, it better be every bit as good on that screen Mm -hmm. as it would be in uh, in a uh, in In a person. person. Mm -hmm. Uh, Same thing with an otoscope or any other uh, stethoscope that you're any listening or any the technologies have to be at a very high grade. And they have to be, they have to be, um, I, I would say I would not encourage anybody to try to go to uh, Best Buy and get some of the cheapest uh, engineered equipment. I also don't think you necessarily need the most highly engineered, but you just need to have the, some reassurance and comfort that the, that the technology that you're deploying uh, is, uh, is at least middle of the road. Mm-hmm. And that uh, you as a practitioner, whether you're mid-level or physician or nurse, or you, are, you could take an oath and say, man, this is, in some instances, better. You know, mm-hmm. honestly, it's better. You can see better. We have that. Uh, yeah, we have yeah, otoscopes, and I yeah. can put your I put it, the light and the camera in your ear and blow it up on my big screen, yeah, right? And probably see better than right, the provider right, next because right. I can blow it up. Right, but, right, right. And yeah. then, and then I would say the other the other thing that is really interesting to me about this is uh, this evolving care, this sort of uh, environment of care. You also have to make sure, and I think this is a, this is easy to 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 not uh, it's easy to discount and not take seriously enough. Your providers who the screens that they have and the space that they're working in have to be really professional and and the patient uh, where you're going to be seeing them shouldn't be in line at the Taco Bell. You know, you should have certain standards that you require of your patients when you when they are. I think that's a uh, great yeah, point. But you wouldn't let them come into your office and tramp tramp around with uh, you know hip boots or uh, you know you'd you'd want them to come in appropriate attire and and observe you know reasonable precautions. Uh, uh, across the board. So technology, environment, and then just a satisfaction that this is at least as good as what you would do if you were in the office or, or the things I'd yeah, be looking for. Yeah, certainly the safe default. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. Um, let's talk about, we've kind of alluded to it already, but um, one big barrier toward adoption of telemedicine, especially in states that do not have equivalent resources, as some states that have large cities, a few more cities, um, is the state medical licensure. So we talked about in Georgia, 
Um, the medical composite board here in Georgia is certainly active as they are in every state. Um, but the requirement, I'm pretty sure, is that the provider needs to be licensed where the patient sits, number one. Mm-hmm. And I'd like you guys also to talk about um, a little bit about the Federation of State Boards Compact that has been developed uh, to try to speed up the telemedicine adoption uh, to get access in states that need it for people that are a little farther away. Okay, Mason, can right, you yeah. that? Um, and that's had really great adoption so far. Uh, I think 17 states have enacted it and, and nine others have proposed it. And so if that, you know, if that catches, uh, you know, that's going to undo a lot of these problems we've had licensure wise and um certainly you understand why states might be reluctant might want to go their own way and that's fine too there are a number of different approaches some states have special telemedicine licenses uh you want a limited license to practice telemedicine across state lines some states uh have reciprocity with their bordering states uh, some states have just a peer-to-peer. If it's a consult, that's okay, but not direct to the patient. Um, so it is a mixed bag right now. Uh, you're right that the where the the licensure rule that applies to any given encounter is, is where the patient is, um, and many states do still require full licensure in that state. Um, Georgia being one of them. So uh, you know it's very exciting what's going on with the um, interstate medical licensure compact, but. Uh, still a, a good number of states to go and, and always always something you want to be mindful of. Are you finding that more states um, have telemedicine-specific types of licensure or are they full licensure? What, do you see any trends happening there? I, I think that with the rise of, of the um, compact, um, that if a state, uh, and, and there's there's a lot of good um, promotion and advocacy going on with the, with the compact, if a state wanted to... Um, uh, welcome telemedicine um, from a licensure standpoint, they would probably go that route. I think the telemedicine specific licenses, uh, well, I, I've seen them, uh, you know, I think there are five or six uh, in the country right now. Those have been on the books for a while, and I, I don't really see those as being a current trend so much as the compact is, is really the current trend. Okay. And my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm very newbie in this. telemedicine law (laughs) is um, that it's expedited license. It's not actual reciprocity like between Georgia and Alabama, but it would be an expedited. Right. There's sort of an interstate commission that oversees the licensing process. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that the, um, you know, the idiosyncrasies and the specialty of your individual state license goes away. It just means there's a streamlined process for getting there. Okay, great. Thanks for that clarification. Okay. Next topic I'd like to talk about is care plans and telemedicine. And uh, certainly we have the host end, which is where the provider sits. And then we have the presenter end, which is wherever the patient sits. And the requirement that there be a clinical telepresenter or clinical person with the patient. They're just not put in an exam room and good luck with that camera. And now the doctor says we need to do this and there's no one's in the room. Can you speak a little bit to telepresenter requirements? Yeah. um, Most states don't have a specific requirement that that there be a telepresenter, that any level of um, medical professional be with the patient. There are a few that do um, Alaska and Hawaii, I think, being two. And, and um, Texas had something for new uh, visits, new conditions. Um, but uh, most states allow it. Uh, but again, you don't want to just stop there. Like we mentioned, you have to, even if it's allowable under state law, you have to look to the payer conditions, 
Do the payer, payers put any restrictions Require on that? It, yeah. And uh, and then again, what is good, uh, reasonable care. level of care? Mm-hmm. Um, if it's a if it's a type of care where you wouldn't want to uh, have just a, a tech or mm-hmm. um, an unlicensed uh, professional there, then you 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 ought to. Yeah, I know. One issue we struggle with being a telemedicine service provider is it's not the encounter itself that's the problem. It's the point where you conclude the visit Mm -hmm. and then you say, Mm -hmm. okay, now this is your care plan. I need labs drawn, but there's no one there. I need this and there's no one there. So again, certain types of visits appropriate for certain kinds of telemedicine encounters, but um, certainly having a clinical person helps, but not a requirement everywhere. Got that. Um, Bill, why don't we talk a little bit? We talked also about how heavily regulated um, telemedicine law is at the state level and why. Mm-hmm. But I'm interested in how you guys feel Georgia is doing since we're mm-hmm. sitting here in Georgia. Mm-hmm. They've been a telemedicine leader, I think, since Oxendine mm-hmm. uh, laid the broadband network, kind of mm-hmm. set the tone for the state. Mm-hmm. But compared to elsewhere, how mm-hmm. do you think we're doing? You know, <clears throat> boy, that's a, I'm a Georgia boy, so that's a loaded question for me. I don't want to ever mm-hmm. not be uh, supportive of our state. I, I think we're ahead of the curve, I believe. I was gratified at, uh, I guess it was in San Antonio four or five years ago. I was in a, an American Telemedicine Association meeting and one of the grand poobahs, uh, I'm blanking on his name right now, but he the first slide he put up was showing that in the 80s, George, uh, University Medical College of Georgia, uh, Dr. Dr. Tedesco started a telemedicine program in the 80s. We're the largest state geographically east of the Mississippi River. Uh, we have um, 159 counties. We have a large rural um, part component of our state. So we really needed telemedicine, and we were early in with parity law. So we're, I would say it this way. I think Georgia has been a pioneer and early in in a lot of things, but I think some states have actually maybe got in later but done more with it. I mm-hmm. think I'd point to Arkansas. I'd point to um, California, certainly. Um, and um, uh, But we certainly, uh, we certainly are, uh, we may not be at the point of the spear, but we're, we're definitely not at the back of the pack either. I think Georgia's doing very well. Um, we could do better. I mean, we every state could, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's sort of my, my take on it. But nice. I, I got to admit, I haven't done a study of it. But. Yeah. Well, Medicare's uh, first payment of a claim, a telemedicine claim, was to was to the Medical College in 93, I think. So that's kind of a good, mm-hmm. we can hang our hat on mm-hmm. that. And I do think, uh, you know, Georgia Partnership for Telehealth has been ar- around since those a days you time. mentioned. They've mm-hmm. done a really great job, and I think there are oftentimes when when people mention Georgia as being a sort of rock star state for telemedicine, which I have heard. I'm not making that mm-hmm. that up. I've mm-hmm. heard that from non-residents. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it it's in large part because of those early efforts. Um, yeah, I think I think we're doing fine. Uh, but again, the states can only do so much, and and we need uh, you know we need Medicare to come around a little bit. That's oftentimes discussed as a big impediment. So, and we're seeing with the population health management, we're seeing some, uh, I think Medicare is showing its hand a little bit that they're, especially in a value-based uh, system, they're really welcoming telemedicine. Sounds yeah. good. And I, I should add this too. You mentioned Alpharetta, the Reach Health is mm-hmm. in Alpharetta, and it's a big deal for Georgia. The, the Chamber of Commerce, I think the Atlanta Chamber of Commerce has done studies, and I don't know if they're still touting it, but they say that, you know, Georgia uh, and Atlanta, and especially mm-hmm. North Atlanta, is sort of the Silicon Valley of, health, healthcare, of healthcare technology. Mm-hmm. And I think the the presence of Georgia Tech and some of the higher-end technology resources have helped to make Georgia uh, uh, outstanding. So. Yeah. I would agree with that. So we just have a few minutes left, but I want to touch on a couple of more topics real quickly. Mason, um, you and I talked offline about that. Certainly um, people hear about healthcare transmission of data and think security. 
So mm-hmm. talk a little bit about HIPAA compliance and kind of the whole bailiwick of how telemedicine keeps things secure and yeah, I think the standards that, of care are still, yeah, still the same. There's a lot of gaps uh, that need to be filled in uh, there too. But uh, you know, t- HIP, the HIPAA law does not mention telemedicine by name anywhere. I don't think so. It, what you're trying to do is apply these this very big law, very broad law, to a new um, form, you know, form of healthcare. Uh, and I and I think one, I guess, uh, you know, practice pointer I, I use sometimes is. Uh, reminding people how much of HIPAA is a a, a human a, a law that regulates what the people are doing and not just what the technology is doing, <laughs> and I think in telemedicine you see a lot of assurances about HIPAA compliance. This software is HIPAA compliant. This network is, and that that oftentimes is based in fact and it's really uh, valuable. But you you also have to remember that there are pr- policies and procedures that need to be in place to comply with HIPAA every single day. Uh, and it, it, you can't just rest on the assurance that something is HIPAA compliant and not be taking those more administrative elements very seriously. Um, but this, the HIPAA security piece does have um, specific requirements related to encryption. And um, and so it's very important to consult somebody who, you know, if you're, if you're going to put your trust in a technology provider, you've got to make sure that they've um, done their homework. And then Gosh, we've done uh, some work in school-based telehealth, and there is a federal law called FERPA that um, regulates medical records in the school setting. And so there's there's an awful lot if you're if you're a healthcare provider that's moving into the school setting for which is a uh, huge trend. Yeah. I know Berrien mm-hmm. County has been a leader nationally mm-hmm. um, in school-based health systems. Right, and it's really wonderful. I mean, it really serves so many uh, really really great purposes. So I. I, I encourage that. I encourage providers to be looking into things like that. But you do you have to be mindful that it might not just be HIPAA that um, is regulating your um, security and privacy of, of medical records. And certainly on the patient end, make sure that you're on a secured network that you're just not emailing your healthcare information. I would. I think we would be remiss <laughs> not to tell the listeners: do not use Skype yes. to do a tele uh, to do a telemedicine encounter. Yeah, right. yes. yeah. So typically, my from my experience, the provider initiates some kind of invitation or connection over a secured network, and then the patient logs in. So I think that uh, patients just need to be aware. I agree. Um, our last topic for the day before we sign off is e-prescribing across state lines. Certainly, it's valuable to have the service, but then the question, like we talked about in follow-up, at the end of the visit, there is, okay, now there's the care plan to deal with. And sometimes that includes prescriptions. So mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about e-prescribing across state lines with telemedicine? Well, just in case you were worried that there weren't enough laws for you to be thinking about <laughs> yes. in telemedicine, there, <laughs> there are usually distinct e-prescribing laws in a state, separate from the ones we discussed earlier about what do you need to have a you know, physician-patient encounter. So uh, you've got to be really mindful of those. There's also a federal law called the Ryan Height Act that applies to controlled substances uh, and is, is really pretty limiting on the ability to provide controlled substances via an online-only encounter. It does have telemedicine-specific exceptions, uh, but those uh, exceptions are in themselves limited to certain facilities, certain settings of care. So um, you, it just, you want to be mindful of what does your state say about the ability to prescribe uh, medication if you've only had an online encounter. 
and then also what does uh, federal law say? And the uh, DEA has announced fairly recently that they're they will actually be passing a rule that uh, lays out a special registration process for um, certain providers to prescribe controlled substances. That has not happened yet, but I guess it's in the works. Again, uh, Tanya, I think this is this falls in the area we were talking about earlier where there's so much good that can be done, but it's so easy to, for it to be abused, mm-hmm. right? We already have a hard time controlling just physical written Absolutely. prescription mm-hmm. scripts, uh, and that gets abused. So, you know, you're abu- if you, when you when you wire something to the net and you you hit the go you hit the gas pedal, it, it gets out of mm-hmm. control quickly. Mm-hmm. So, that's that just making that right-sized and orderly is mm-hmm. what Getting regulate yep. regulatory yep, yep. laws around that or yep. whatever. That yep. sounds good. Well, before we leave, I'd like to just take your a pulse with both of you and just say, uh, since you deal in telemedicine law, are there any trends that either you are happy about with telemedicine or that are very concerning to each one of you? Bill, why don't we start mm-hmm. with you? It's a great question. Um, I think what's mostly happy, uh, mostly happy faces on my side. I'm really um, uh, uh, gratified to see that the we're, we may not be at the hockey, you know, in technology companies, about the hockey stick where things really shoot up. But telemedicine is really coming of age right now, just generally as a trend. I see that. And um, that's very encouraging because it's going to mean better access. We have not enough providers to go around. Um, I also like trends toward uh, niches that we people are just now saying, well, we could do this or we could do that. For example, public health is a great mm-hmm. it's a great example. Thousands of lives in just about every county or community could be uh, those public school nurses could be backed up by nurse practitioners or physicians. Uh, and it's going to be over time having I think we're on the, the, the front end of the curve, but we're going to be having a lot of very positive uh, impacts to population health management. And we're going to be getting healthier. Uh, in part because our access to care will be so much easier with telemedicine. So mm-hmm. I'm very encouraged about it. Okay, Mason, how about you? Yeah, I agree uh, with what Bill said. And I, I also think um, what we're seeing, the um, compatibility of telemedicine with population health management and, and value-oriented care is really exciting. And we're already, you know, again, I'm sure there are a lot of telemedicine providers out there who, who want Medicare to be doing much more than they're doing. But they've they've given it their blessing. They've given it their blessing, especially in the context of um, alternative payment models. And so that's really exciting. You know, concerns we what we're seeing in Texas may play out in other places. Um, So we do encourage telehealth providers to kind of try their best to work with the uh, local institutional providers, the physicians who are already on the ground in those states, because. I think we do. We do need both. We do, we need expanded telemedicine, and we also uh, we also need our our doctors to not be displaced. You know, mm-hmm. so um, I, I think I always like to see that telehealth providers uh, when they when they're working with the local community of providers to try to come up with a solution where they're not totally at odds. Right. Well, certainly a lot to look forward to with telemedicine and keep our pulse on things that are happening in the regulatory sphere. So we're at the end of our broadcast. Time flies by when you're having fun. Why don't you tell us how to reach you guys? And for oh. the listeners. Oh, wow. <laughs> so your phone number and website? Yeah, or? I think probably the website would be where I would point everybody. Okay. It's um, spelled bowling, B-O-L-I-N-G, um, bowlingandcompany.com. At B-O-L-I-N-G-A-N-D-C-O-M-P-A-N-Y.com. And if you go there, you'll get you'll get to see our, 
our faces, our team, our phone numbers, our emails, um, and we're in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, we are on Twitter as well, just very recently. So um, the handle is Bowling and Co. Uh, B O L I N G A N D C O. Okay, so uh, social media share. There's been a lot of good information today. CW been quiet and listening, but boy, what That's a fascinating right. show! As we uh, learn a lot more about uh, telemedicine law and kind of where we're headed, and a few minefields to watch out for. If you want more information about women's telehealth, go to womenstelehealth.com. And you can learn about how they are providing the high-risk maternal fetal specialists to uh, practices and hospitals around the country, both in rural communities as well as in the major cities. And if you've not done so already, if you look in the upper left-hand corner of the show page, you'll see the Apple logo there. That'll take you to the Top Docs Radio Show podcast and subscribe to us. That way, each week when the new episode comes out, it's downloaded straight to your device, ready for you to check it out whenever it's convenient for you. And we hope you turn around and share this information with your social media networks. You might just put some information in the hands of somebody that is important to you that makes a difference in their daily life. So we want to say thanks in advance for that. Tanya, it's always a pleasure. Yeah, great fun. Bill and Mason, thank you so much. Yeah, and listeners, so have much. a great afternoon. You guys yeah, did great. Awesome. Total thank pros. you, guys. Thank we look you. forward to seeing you all same time, same place next week. We'll see you then. 